You're listening to the Our Eerie Podcast with Devonna Paisley, Marty Wachuku, and Lydia Laith. We're here to highlight community voices and bring new perspectives to the table. We are unpacking Eerie's and America's baggage. We're speaking truth to power. Take a seat. Hello, everybody. Welcome back to Our Eerie. We are so excited. We have... Some guests with us from United Way of Erie, who also happen to be our beautiful sponsors um, of this podcast season. And so I will go and I will let the, each, ladies, uh, each lady speak and say who they are. Hi, everyone. Um, my name is Jo Lynn Bush. I am an Erie native, born and raised and have never left. Um, so I've been with United Way for going on seven years, and I'm currently the Director of Marketing and Communications. Very happy to be here. I guess I'll follow JoLynn. Uh, hi, everyone. I'm Laurie Root. I'm the Senior Vice President uh, at United Way of Erie County. And I, um, a little bit different from JoLynn, I'm a boomeranger. I grew up in Erie, uh, but uh, went away for quite some time, lived in D.C., but have come back and very happy. I've been with United Way for 10 years. So, um, and I'll bump it over to Katrina. Hello, thank you for having me. My name is Katrina Bird, and I'm the community school director at Strong Vincent Middle School. I moved to Erie, Pennsylvania four years ago from Brooklyn, New York. And I'm Caitlin Falk. I am the community school coordinator over at Strong Vincent and work very closely with Katrina. I, too, am a transplant. I'm from Buffalo, which is not too far away, but definitely a, a different culture and flavor. So um, there's been some culture shock coming to Erie, but we ha- I've been here eight years and I love it and I'm happy to really be planting roots here. Yes. Uh, so we have a group of boomerangers, transplants uh, that I love it. I, I love the term boomeranger. I never heard of that. <laughs> I love that. I'm going to start using that. <laughs> I love that term. I was like, hmm, would I be considered one if I left though, went to college and then came back? No. That's I, a boomeranger. I, yeah, I, think, I think that's I, like a partial boomer. You're like, yeah. I just want to be a boomeranger. That's basically what <laughs> That sounds cool. <laughs> that's a cool um, I think you're just a boom. You're not a ranger yet. Yeah. Boom. <laughs> I'm going to say a boom. I'm a boom. Yeah. That's a good one. I like that. <laughs> well, I'm super excited to have each and every one of you here today. Um, it's definitely an honor, especially because it's also Women's History Month. And so we really, really wanted to make sure that we magnified the voices of ladies that are here in, uh, in Erie doing some great work. I- I want, I'm interested to know the transplants right now. I'm interested to know what brought you to Erie. And we'll start with Caitlin. I'm interested to know. Uh, Well, I came here for college. I went to Gannon. Uh, So I think that my years in Erie have definitely been split as college and post-college because college, you're just on Gannon's campus. You're really in that bubble. And um, it was a very happy bubble. I was, I was happy to be there. I met a lot of great friends, learned a lot of things about life, had amazing opportunities, but definitely life post-college has been um, different. And what I have loved about my experience is really, um, getting to meet people. And when I was at Gannon, I felt like I knew everyone at Gannon, which is so fun. It was like being a a big fish in a small pond, but then to get out in, in Erie, which is, is still a small pond in and of itself, but bigger than the Gannon community. Um, I've just really gotten the opportunity to meet so many people through our neighborhood, through the schools, through church. Um, it's just, it is a great place to be. Thank you. Thank you for sharing. Okay. All right. 
What about you, Katrina? What brings you here to Erie? I mean, Brooklyn, New York, now you're here in Erie, PA. Like there's definitely, I, I want to know, has there been a culture shock in some way? Like, you know, it, it's just interesting. I'm, I'm interested to know. Oh, you know, I was doing this kind of work back in Brooklyn. I just wanted to change. So for months, I was just scrolling the internet, looking for jobs. And then again, an opportunity popped up and I applied. So to say the least that it was a culture shock is more like a tsunami, earthquake, uh, yeah, ice frozen boom thing. It was like somebody just picked me up. When I first got here, I felt like somebody picked me up and dropped me back into the 1960s. Wow. In terms of electronics, diversity, culture. And in the four years that I've been here, it's been slowly inching its way, you know, but there's still a lot of, for, for me, it's a, to me, there's still a whole lot of room for growth and advancement. Yes. Hmm. Well, and I'd love to hear, I mean, along that same vein, so as like a fellow pseudo boomeranger, because I went to school out in Oregon and then I came back, even though when I left, I said, I'm never coming back. Like I, you know, need to spread my wings and fly. And then I was like, mm, just kidding. I'll be right back. So I'm wondering, Lori, what your experience was living somewhere else and then coming back and, and kind of, yeah, what your motivation to come back was. And then also maybe like what you brought back with you and, and kind of how that has informed your work now coming back to this community. Sure. So um, I lived, and this will um, age me, but um, <laughs> I was in the D.C. area for 30 years um, and um, loved a lot of the aspects uh, around it, probably similar to Katrina, the diversity. I mean, I lived in a very international community. Uh, the food was incredible. You could get any kind of food at any time, you know, um, just the choices, the culture. Um, it also, there was a very intense um, community. Well, it wasn't a community. Washington, D.C. is really not a community, um, but it's a very intense um, atmosphere, environment. And um, we decided that, you know, kids were all gone. Uh, none of them stayed. So what the heck were we doing there? And this opportunity came up. I never thought, um, you know, like you, that I would be coming back to Erie, um, but I did. And honestly, I had quite a bit of a culture shock coming back. Um, but I've seen some movement, some positive movement, and um, I'm committed to the work that United Way is doing. I, I really believe in it, and I really believe that it can change uh, the future for our students and their families. And I'm, I'm really excited to be involved with that. Yeah. Well, that's, it's so neat because I think Erie is such a, a fun cross-section of both transplants, boomerangers, and, and folks that have lived there, you know, like, like Joe Lynn. So I would also just like to loop Joe Lynn into this conversation of like, you know, how do you see yourself living, growing up and, and, really being immersed in Erie your whole life? Like, how do you think that shifts your perspective on the work you're doing? Um, I think you fall into two buckets when you're a native. You either hate Erie and you talk about how much you hate it, or you love Erie and you talk about how much you love it. And I always fell into that second bucket. Um, from the time I was 15, I, I remember getting my first job at Wegmans and it was a culture in of itself. And it kind of taught me that sense of community and taught that 
taught me that sense of giving back. It was where I donated to United Way for the first time out of my paycheck. And so I always talk about coming full circle, but for me, you know, it was really a matter of being in that second, second bucket and being influential in terms of people's perspective of Erie. Um, anybody I met, I would talk about it and how lovely it was and new people, you know, just coming, coming here. I think that's been a big difference too. So I know that one of our first questions that we uh, wanted to, to dive into with you folks, and I'll just let you all decide who wants to answer, who feels, you know, best equipped. Uh, but we, we know that United Way's mission is to address poverty in Erie. And one of the ways it seems that you all do a lot of that is through school and particularly through um, improving literacy in Erie. And uh, I'll admit for myself, like I didn't immediately see that connection of, of how that relates. And I'm sure there are a lot of people that don't see that um, connection immediately. So can, can someone explain you know, what's the connection between poverty and literacy and, and how do you see those kind of uh, relating? I'll, I'll take a first stab at that. Um, and Joanne and Katrina and Caitlin, please pop, pop in. Um, so United Way Berry County has really changed, done a 180 in the past several years. Um, we have completely shifted away from the old transaction model, which was really more of a pass-through model of being the fundraiser for the community and then giving it to other groups, agencies that were doing uh, terrific work. But the problem was we weren't making any long lasting changes. I mean, we still have this awful cycle of poverty in our community. And um, so, you know, it was a real wake up call to us is, you know, if we were starting from right now, would we be doing what we're doing? And we said, no. So why are we doing it? Um, so we put a lot of thought, a lot of research into what impact with our limited resources in the community could we have to make positive change and start with what is bringing our community down. And one of the main things is the high level, the high rate of poverty in our community. So we said, okay, let's, let's focus on poverty and um, great. Well, what does that mean? What are we going to do what, to address it? And again, um, it's no secret, really, education is the key to breaking the cycle of poverty. And when children get a good education, you've given them the keys to open up the doors of opportunity for the rest of their lives. And so within education, we're like, okay, well, if we're going to focus on education, what are we going to do? Well, Literacy is the foundation for all education. I mean, everything really depends on being proficient in, in literacy and reading. And so we started really with the Imagination Library, which is a free book program for children from the time they're born till their fifth birthday. And just getting the books into these little hands and encouraging reading was so, so important, important and impactful. But then, you know, we were still continuing to research, you know, what what what's the big thing that we're going to be doing and that's how we landed on community schools because community schools quite frankly level the playing field it should not matter what zip code a child lives in it should not matter what their home environment is every child deserves to have the opportunity to excel and soar in school and be successful and so that's how we, it, it was a journey um, and it took a lot of research and it wasn't easy and change 
is not easy and sometimes change in area is particularly challenging um, and not well received. But I think that we've, we've gotten to a point where we have um, a lot of support and um, I think we're definitely on the, on the right track. Right quick, Laura, you said something that was really key when you said get the hands, get the books into little hands. So that would tie into us as a school because not, you know, a little two-year-old, he or she cannot read. So it's on the parents now to get parent engagement into this piece now to get parents involved because they ultimately are the ones who are reading these books to the kids. And at our, our school level, one of the things we struggle with is parent engagement. But we've been a middle school, as you guys know, Strong Vincent High School turned into a middle school. Let me know if I speak too fast. That's just that Brooklyn girl in me. We kind of speed. So if you do one of these, like, I know to. So now, especially when I get hyped about something, I get passionate. I just start speed talking. I wish I could speed walk. But I said speed walking. So one of the hardest things we have is um, getting parents connected to the kids through engagement in the school. So with Gannon being our lead partner, the way the community school model is set up, is we have a corporate partner, which is Highmark, and our lead partner, which is Gannon. So Highmark is like the funders, and Gannon is our resource. So Gannon University, they have multitude of professors and students and so on. So we are now merging together to bring their resources onto the campus. Before COVID hit, we were launching, going to launch programs for parents. Computer 101, how to do a resume, how to job hunt, and so on with people from Gannon to do it for us for free. So our key thing at Strong Vincent is to get more parents engaged. If parents are excited about education, it's gonna transform most of their kids. We have an amazing program called Feeding Minds and Families. It's a STEM program where the kids learn a STEM activity with leaders of the community that are doing the work already and they're real daylight. They're not pretending, they're real scientists or whatever they do. And the second half of that, is that they, we feed the families real food that Mets cater for us. And what we love about it is that you have different people from different backgrounds mingling together as one for the sole purpose of their children. And one of those opportunities, one of my parents, he didn't have a job. So just by him being himself and being talkative, he was talking to this other parent. And she was like, oh, well, I'm hiring. Not we're hiring, but I'm hiring. Give me a call. So though, yeah, so those kind of things make an impact. And when the kids see that the parents are together, regardless of their race or socioeconomical background, that it just keeps moving. It's a slow climb, but we're getting there to make the difference. So education, like what we said, is the key in family engagement. And I think that's what makes the community school model so great is that we have all um, we have the space to do all these different things. So yes, we're addressing literacy, but we're also addressing parent engagement. We're also addressing maybe day-to-day -day needs and we're addressing social emotional um, needs for the kids. And before I, I guess right after college, I actually served in the AmeriCorps, which is the domestic version of the Peace Corps. And their mission was to eradicate poverty. So a similar mission along with the United Way, which is a, is a very bold, audacious mission. And I think it's something that, you know, it's kind of the shoot for the moon, and you'll land among the stars kind of thing. I don't know um, how long it will take or if we'll ever really get there. But when we're when we set that high standard, um, we're growing. But through my time in AmeriCorps, it also made me realize that we also have to look at all of the, the factors that lead to poverty. So it's not just 
standing in the present and looking to the future, but it's standing in the present, looking back on the past to understand how we got here, because there's a lot of, um, there's a lot of pieces to the conversation of poverty, whether it's generational poverty or institutionalized um, systems that have impacted people's lives, not just here and let's look to the future, but we have to, it's a multifactored approach. And I think the community, the community schools model is a way to um, address all of those pieces. Thank you for that. I, I'm interested, um, you know, when I hear the, when I hear y'all speak about, so passionately about the community schools being a very good initiative to do, I also am curious to know what some of those challenges though that y'all have faced and um, going back to, I believe Katrina, you said it, you said that, um, or one, actually I think that we all were agreeing to either Katrina or, uh, or Caitlin about how um, change, people in Erie don't like change, change is not easy, change, and I, that's a very hard thing. So I wonder what are some of those what are some of the, the challenges that y'all faced in doing this transition of creating a community school base and having more people um, want to collaborate with you? Because, I mean, you guys now have collaborated with Gannon, like you, uh, Katrina was talking about. Um, there has been LeeCom. And so, like, what have been some of those things that you faced? Fortunately for us, which I think is a huge plus, it was scary for me to begin. I was here for literally like 90 days at Emerson Gritley. And the word came down a pike like Emerson Gridley was closing. You gotta be kidding me. I just moved here with my suitcase and couch and two dogs and they're closing. What the hell am I supposed to do now? But we came together as a new school. It picked up the Roosevelt Middle School and put us all into one school with just a few teachers remaining from the high school. So it was easily adaptable, but then you did have those who were there before. And I like to say we were, the challenge was changing the culture. So when I mentioned parents, when they come into the school, they're met with kind of like resentment or attitude-ish, what you're doing here now, you're back here, oh my kind of gosh. Not to penalize people for doing something that they've been doing forever. Maybe they don't realize they're doing it. Maybe they just, I, I don't know what the story was. But getting through to those people to let them see that those folks on the other side of the counter are human. They have real life issues. They're coming to us for a reason. And as a student themselves, from what I'm learning since I've been here, that they may have been damaged as a student themselves because of those reactions, because of the exchanges that they have. So they are disenfranchised and disconnected from the schools. And it's generational, it's passed on. So here comes Caitlin and Katrina with our little ideology attitudes and little bubbly selves, because we could be the bubbly ones, we're not immersed in with the kids the day-to-day. Because working with kids can be challenging and tiring. So we were always upbeat challenging those that are in place to make a difference when folks come into the main office or when you call a parent, call parents for good stuff, just random stuff. Text parents just random, but Caitlin is good at it. She has like on phone, like 200 parents, she just texts randomly. Hey, Devonna did great today. I saw a word on the hallway, her spirits are good. Really? She was upset this morning. Mm-hmm. We saw that. So we saw in the hallway, we pull it to the side kind of thing. So it's just changing the culture, changing the ideology, you know, so we got people on board and now we let the teachers know that you matter as well, teacher. You're not just the one in the classroom. We care about you. So we have like breakfasts for teachers. Caitlin launched this huge um, Fitbit challenge when she saw teachers walking around the hall exercising. So she's like, hey, Gannon has all of these Fitbits. Would you like guys to do a challenge? So out of our money, thank you, United Way, for providing the funds, not specifically for that, but just United Way funds in general. We were able to give them prizes. 
and bought them lunches for the, the one who walked the most and the one who did this and what. So let them see that we see you as well. We see you working hard. So it's a collective effort, not just the students, not just the parents, but the teachers and staff, even the custodians. When we buy hoodies for something, we buy them hoodies as well. Everybody want to feel mattered. Everybody want to feel important. Everybody wants to feel part of. So we're bringing all of that together as one. So we call ourselves the Strong Vincent family. As you just heard Caitlin say, her, her brother Kuja was barking. I call Caitlin my daughter. Can't you see the resemblance? <laughs> <laughs> because I'm old enough to be her mom. Like, like Lori said, I'm aging myself, but I could be Caitlin's mom. So that's, I'm going to introduce you guys to my daughter. And here comes Caitlin and her brother. So <laughs> I think what makes us stand apart with what we're doing is that we actually love each other as a school. And we're a family. We're not just co-workers. It's not just Caitlin and I, but also our principal, Andrea, and the Swiss team. I could go on and on about our school, but we actually care about each other, each other's well-being. There is no doubt you you guys are proud. I was going to take it um, up to that 30,000-foot view to United Way's perspective on this, a challenge with community schools from mar- marketing lens. Nobody knows or knew what they were when we launched. So in 2016, um, to bring a model that is 20 years old to the community that's nationwide, really worldwide, there are community schools all over the nation. Um, So to bring that model to a community that has no idea what it is, um, to explain what it is in a 30-second elevator speech, um, those kind of things. But you know, it's been a challenge to describe the work and to get buy-in for the work, which is essential. You have to have a principal that wants to co- a co-pilot. You have to have a superintendent that buys into the work. But also, you know, United Way as a brand um, faces challenges with people understanding that we're a local organization. Um, they believe that their funding is not staying here in the community, and we fight every day to. Um, really challenge that uh, perception because it's just not true. Um, so we have, you know, an additional challenge of people understanding what United Way does in the community, but also what are community schools. Um, and it's it's been uh, a process to learn how to explain it as we've been launching the model. So speaking of the model, um, what is a community school? Because we we're talking about it, and I think some of us may have like a general understanding, but like now's the opportunity to really like tell folks what it is. I'll, I'll take that because as JoLynn alluded to, we spent a lot of time trying to whittle down the description of it into bite size uh, because to really explain a community school and the model, it would take a long time. I could take up this whole podcast on it. But essentially, one of the things that's really important to understand about the community school model is it is not a program. It is not a plug and play program. It is a framework. It's a strategy of how school buildings function differently. And it's a real, um, Katrina alluded to this, it is, it changes the entire culture of the school. But from a 50,000 level um, definition of a community school. A community school is a model that addresses the barriers to learning and breaking down those barriers to learning that low income children face at a heightened rate. So in those barriers to learning, you range from basic needs like food, clothing, shelter, 
to uh, behavioral and mental health counseling, to uh, vision and dental support. I mean, imagine imagine showing up in school in dirty clothes, maybe rip, maybe in the wintertime, you don't have the proper footwear, um, you need glasses, you don't have glasses, you haven't been to the dentist. Um, we, we have dealt with students that are, you know, in middle school who've never been to a dentist. Um, you know, so you, how can you expect a child to show up to school, maybe coming from trauma in their home environment, um, and to immediately get into the classroom, shut all that off, maybe they're hungry, shut all that off, and listen and engage and learn. It doesn't happen. So the community school model really is structured to, and it's, it's a very, um, it's all evidence-based, the measurements, and, and Katrina and Caitlin can talk about this. This is, this, is a, this is an action plan that every school has. It is, it is you know, about 150 pages long, and the community school director with United Way gather all of this data to identify what are the needs in that school, where are the gaps, what is happening in the school, how can it happen a little bit differently, and let's have a cohesive approach to delivering resources that remove those barriers and break down those barriers. And as Katrina alluded to, it's not just the students, it's the entire family. You know, if the, if the family is struggling, if the family is unstable, the child is also going to be. So, you know, Katrina and can, Caitlin can talk about the time they spend with parents as well as, as with the students. And so now community schools become a hub of their neighborhood. They become a safe place. Um, they become a place for resources and, and for growth and for assistance. So, um, and children begin to thrive. You start peeling away those barriers, they start to be able to engage in a much more positive way in school. And, you know, research shows that in, you know, starting at five years and on, the academic um, improvements start to be realized. Does that, does that make sense, Marty? Yeah, that makes sense to me. Add on, Marty, right quick, what Laurie's saying, like from um, our level, because the United Way is way at the top. They, 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 we call, they, they, they call themselves our backbone, but I think they're like our protective gear. <laughs> they're our protectors. So all that that Laurie says, what we did was we brought in like the mobile dentist to come in to see the kids, to do the kids' teeth with cleanings and extractions and so on. We have a coat, a closet full of coats for girls and boys. We have boots, we have shoes, we have um, some school supplies, things that kids would need right there on the campus. They don't have to go far to go get it. On the elementary school level, they have the vision people to come in. They have an eye doctor, he comes right in, he or she, and he does their vision and so on, right on the campus. So they don't have to miss any seat time, any learning time, and it's right there. So that's what we mean by it's the hub of the community. And as we continue to grow, more programs would be there on a the campus, not to take away from community centers, but we are now becoming that place. If you were to Google, um, in Cincinnati, Ohio, it's called Euler High School. They're like the community school mother to me. On their campus, as they every day, they have a full-time doctor, full-time dentist, full-time mental health team right there on the campus, and everybody in the community can go there 
every day and have a full pantry. They have a, like a big contract with Kroger's and they families could go there shopping when their food runs short. So that's the aim of what I feel is a community school. So, so essentially, uh, you-, you know, oh, sorry. So essentially like where all these services are in different places and families have to make plans of how to get to all these different places, you're making the school a central space yes. in the community, a community hub where you can go get these services that are essential to our mm-hmm. health and well-being. And We even have a mental health piece through the Achievement Center on campus so the families don't have to go way to Never Neverland. As you know, here in Erie, transportation is a huge issue. So the services are right there on the campus. Go ahead, Jolyn. Um, I was just going to ask Katrina, because I, I feel like this is impactful when you talk about the partnerships that are forged, and maybe we we're going to get into this, but Highmark and Gannon on both sides. So Highmark is the corporate partner and Gannon as the lead partner, that structure is in place at each of United Way's 10 community schools. Um, and it's why we invited Caitlin and Katrina here with us because they have some really great you know, examples and just experience now with the model to talk about the partnership. So I don't know if you all have any meaningful um, partnership connections that you wanted to share, but I know Highmark and Gannon have just done some amazing things as partners. There was one time, sorry, Caitlin, if you want to speak, one time when um, the district, sometime in August, whatever it was, they did these physicals for for sports, but parents missed it. Now, the sports time is like, oh, well, you should have went there in August. Too bad. It's like months later. So I called up our corporate partner, Highmark, and said, hey, do you have a doctor that will come down to the school? I got myself in trouble, but I'm learning the area. It's better to do it, ask for permission later. To ask if there's a doctor that could come here with the parent permission on campus to see these kids. And within two days or so, they sent the doctor out. He did a little examination and all the kids go to play to play soccer. And it was some of our students that are our L students and the parents will speak much English. These forms that were going home, they couldn't read it. They didn't know what it was. So the kids would have missed out on an opportunity. But Highmark was on it. And they sent the doctor right there. And I think the, the power of those partnerships that we have is it truly boils down to relationships. And I, that's the thing that I harp on the most is authentic relationships. So not just transactional relationships, trying to see what you can get out of people or what they can get out of us, um, you know, for picture and data purposes, but for people that authentically are our friends. And I think coming from Gannon, so I, prior to, um, coming over to Strong Vincent, I'm, I'm, and I'm still a Gannon employee now at Strong Vincent, but I was at Gannon for the, for the past, the three years before I started working at, um, at Strong Vincent. And so I have a lot of friends there and I know a lot of people. So when we have an idea where we want something like, Hey, we want, um, some of our uh, athletes, student athletes from Gannon to come in and do something with our, uh, SV students. Well, I know the coach personally, I can call him up and see if he has any athletes that would be a good fit. Um, and I don't have to, I guess, mince words where I can say like, hey, we're looking for engaging students. We don't want any of your boring students. We want the students that are going to come out and play with our kids. Um, and just other things. We have this amazing program called Junior Chef that is like probably the number one program that our kids have loved so far. And it's, it was um, it was run by my people, my friends from my church, and they have committed to Strong Vincent for other reasons. It's not just because of me, obviously they're in the neighborhood of Strong Vincent, but, you know, because we have a friendship, we can talk about deeper needs or deeper things, or if there's something going on, it's so easy to say, 
hey, here's something that would be beneficial to us, or hey, here's how you can change the program a little bit so that it better fits our students. And I think authentic relationships with our partners is key because when you have that, like Katrina said, we we love each other. We love our partners. We are friends with people. And that's how I think things get done is when you love each other. People use the term, um, they like to throw it around, building, building relationships. We say we have built trust with our corporate partner, our lead partner, and as our parents. A lot of our parents are Caitlin's age. So they see Caitlin as an equal, as a friend. Caitlin doesn't have any children, so what does she know about parenting kind of thing? But then they see me as kind of like the mother, the grandma. So what we're telling them, we're telling you for your own good. And they believe us, and they listen, and they follow through. So we have about 300 parents under our belt that parents would just follow us like the Pied Piper. Where we go, they want to be there as well. So we have built that trust. And Caitlin also works deeply with um, our West Bayfront. And we, we don't just do this job. This is our passion. It's not just a job. And Caitlin and I both live in the community with our families. We live right here. That's huge. We see our kids every day. We see our parents. We live right here. As I call it, my eerie hood, right here with the kids. That's powerful. I, I think that's what's key because when we, because we have that trust, when we are referring parents to programs, we need those. We want to make sure that those programs are are safe places, are non-judgmental places, are places that are really, um, you know, for our students to flourish and not for them to just kind of feel like another number or feel like um, a statistic or something like that. So we kind of vet those programs or those people closely because we would never want to refer our students who who love and trust us to something that could be um, either damaging or take advantage of them. So that's part of the, the, the key about building trust that Katrina said is everything. We have a conversation almost daily where we are checking in with, with our intentions and with different partners intentions um, because we really want the best for our family. Well, I think this relates to something that we had talked about um, outside of this conversation as a, a concern or, or a potential pitfall that I think you, you all are addressing right now, like really perfectly, but I'll just bring it up because I, I, I'm sure that it's been a concern for some folks, um, but maybe, or maybe not. So people can correct me if I'm wrong, but um, uh, speaking as a white woman who is in the social work field, who cares about helping people, but is also aware of, of the, racial and socioeconomic dynamics at play in a lot of social work situations or helper situations. Um, we've talked on this podcast about, uh, about kind of like that white savior complex of like this white person that comes in or this wealthy person that comes in and says, here's what I'm going to do for you and doesn't consult the community or doesn't really consider like, is this actually helping or is this what they want? Um, and I think that there's, you know, really well-intentioned people can still kind of fall into that um, that, that fault or, or that pitfall there. Um, and how do you make sure that, that you're not doing that? Cause it sounds like, you know, you really do have buy-in from the community. And, and you said, you know, you're checking with your intentions, you know, in addition to that, is there anything else you're doing either at the top level or on the ground level that, that you're doing to make sure that you don't ever fall into that sort of like here, we know best, let us fix you kind of. So can I take that from the United Way perspective? First, and then we can talk about the, the community school, the more granular um, aspect of it. 
Um, United Way follows, um, it, it's a called collective impact and it's an actual framework of how to work um, and how to address social challenges in communities. And it was developed at Harvard and uh, by, um, with Harvard and, and a, a, consult, a global consulting uh, firm, FSG, that um, goes into communities to help them put together the structure of how to address complex social issues. And poverty is a complex social issue. It is, it's gonna take a lot of hard work and it's gonna take working differently. And with collective impact, there are um, certain, that you have to work a certain way, but one of one of the most important is open communications and um, shared measurements. You have uh, the backbone organization, which is United Way, to keep everybody uh, together and working together. And it's essentially you leave your own agenda at the door, and we're coming in, and we're coming in together because we have a common goal. And the common goal is we want our students to be successful in school. And we, it's important to be respectful of all voices. And it, it's collective impact leadership is not easy. We all have our egos, but with collective impact, you have to let go of those egos and work as a team to accomplish the outcomes that we want to as a community. So. It's working a, a lot differently. Um, there is not a whole lot of collective impact that has happened in Erie. Um, hopefully we'll see more of that. Um, I, I think we are seeing signs of it, but um, really, you know, and, and Caitlin and, well, and Jolyn and, and Katrina can talk about, you know, the importance of it at the community school level, but each community school has a community school leadership team. Um, the community school director and the um, out-of-school time coordinators, they um, talk to the teachers, they talk to the um, students, they talk to the parents, they talk to the uh, administrators, they talk to the neighborhood, they talk to businesses in the neighborhood. All these voices are really important and they have to be included if we're going to get to a different place. Thank you. In layman's terms, we did, instead of just telling the families what they should do or what they should have, we did, uh, she put up the action plan a few, a few minutes ago, and we did surveys back back when to see what the needs of the community are or were, and it's it's constantly changing. Every year we reevaluate it and go over it again. But to speak from a person of diverse, I'm loving this forum here because I see two other women that look like I do, and it's encouraging and it's empowering. What I would like to see, my vision, my dream to sound like Dr. King is hiring more folks of diversity, not just people that look like the women that look like me, out for our, our L students, our Asian students, and across the board moving here, and it's all across the board, there's just one or two, if any, at a lot of these meetings that I go to, and that's disheartening. It really, really is. And to change the mindset of some people in the email just the other day, a woman referred to, like she said, um, I don't know if I was supposed to get the email, but I was in it. She would prefer to have a person of color to be the presenter, um, the expert or something. And then she said that in the public email, when I called her out on it, folks called me sidebar to apologize. If you want to correct the error, do it publicly, not to embarrass this person, 
but to let them see the, the error of their ways and like this kind of thinking and these kind of words could be hurtful to other, other folks, the change in mentality. And I, I think it all goes to the hiring practices, to hire those as well. And I said this to the people that I, I'm, I sit on the board at the Erie Children's Museum. And when they first was vetting me three, four years ago, they said, I was new here. What have you heard about the museum? I said, listen, don't ask me my opinion. We don't want my honest answer because I'm straightforward and in your face about it. And I said, I, I see and hear this museum is for rich little white kids. So what can we do to change that? How about your greeter at the front door? If you're looking to bring in the Muslim community, maybe someone that looks like them. You're looking to bring in these different communities, somebody that the people can identify with. But breaking down the barriers of race in our school, I have little white kids, little white boys and girls calling me grandma before COVID, giving me hugs, giving me kisses and so on. Because Caitlin and I are that face out there. I say that Caitlin now is woke. She and I have intense conversations, but I'm sure in the beginning we're a little uncomfortable from her coming from the Gannon background when everything is all cheery and rosy and fun every day, but this is the real world. And she sees firsthand how some of these remarks affect me personally and send me to a tailspin. And she witnessed it all the time and see me go through those ups and down emotions. So she gets it. So I believe if there's more diversity within the workplace, within the school system, on Gannon's campus, even at United Way and so on, Erie Insurance, well, not even Erie Insurance, because they have a big diverse one. Mm -hmm. At the hospitals, we will start to break down barriers, but that's beyond my scope of my little school, my little corner of the world, is to see the kids that no matter what color your skin are, it's we love you. And here we are. I, I, I'm listening to everybody and I'm just like, wow, my mind is spinning with so many things right now. I can't even, okay, so this, this is a comment to pretty much everything that you all said. Um, what I'm hearing is it's still being a systemic issue. Uh, what I, I, and I, I'm going to go to the collective impact thing in general. So collective impact was actually coined, uh, the term was coined not coined, I should say, but that was uh, by, uh, and I was just researching it, Mark Kramer and John Kania. Um, and we have to understand, these, uh, I don't know if these men are white or not, but I understand that they've created a system and a collective way to do a, a, an approach to add to you know, community consciousness and whatnot, and I, and I respect it. Um, but I think that what we all still struggle with and all these great things that are happening for our, our city, um, for our, uh, America in general, we're still under the system of white supremacy and patriarchy. And when we can't, change cannot, yes, it can happen at the very small level, but until we change the systems, we will have these issues of lack of diversity. Um, we will have these issues of the things that you were just talking about, Katrina. So I love that United Way is doing this because we in our community need this collective impact, but it's not brand new because feminists have been doing this for years. Um, the black community uh, has been doing this for years um, and centuries. This we've this, So when I hear about some of these new things that people are adding, I'm like, these are things that have been taken from communities and then restructured from Stanford and Harvard because they're formative school, uh, they're what uh, 
uh, what are they? They're very prominent schools that get a little bit of appeal. And this is just my thoughts. I'm just thinking about all this, right? That's interesting that we're still struggling with the, the fact that there's these systems that lack diversity at the very top. You know, it just, it makes me kind of like, I don't know if anybody else is kind of thinking about that, but I'm just thinking like, it's still a big issue. This is still a problem. Like I should not sit here. We should not sit here and hear Katrina say that she wants to have more diversity, more culture in, in these, in these schools. Yes, we need that, but that needs to be like in the mindset of the people at the top. And a lot of them are not people that have been in situations where they're helping these people. Mm -hmm. You know what I'm saying? And so I think that when Liddy was asking earlier about the conversation, about the, like the white savior complex, to me, honestly, sometimes it still feels like it, you know, like all these systems still feel as much as they're in good faith, they still feel like there's a savior complex because of the people who are creating these, these mm -hmm. who are kind of like still kind of not understanding really the plight of people who are in poverty and, uh, you know, and so I don't know, I feel like there's still, and I'm feeling like there's still a little bit of a disconnect. Um, but I do feel, and I value the work that you all are doing. And I hope that we can kind of shift the mindset. It's not that we have to fix these systems. This is a bigger system that we have to fight. Uh, you know, that's just, I'm hearing you all. And it's like, wow, I still get frustrated. And I'll be real, like, I still get frustrated that we have to sit here in 2021. It's like, we're moving forward. And yet we're still holding these old systems and beliefs and perspectives that don't benefit us moving forward. You know, and, and so like words can change and like we can change terms, but it's till we change the systems and like break them down and really restart from the like bottom, like it's going to still, and, and I don't want to be like a Debbie Downer, but that's what I'm feeling. Like the systems have to change and I should not mm -hmm. say Debbie Downer. That's not right for me to say. I, I, I'm not going to apologize. That's how I feel. Period. I had okay. a question because the term collective, collective um, impact wasn't familiar to me and my background is grassroots organizing. So my question is like, um, through all the programming, where is the feedback from like the parents coming from the planning that's happening with the parents and students? Is there any of that happening? Like, is any of that part of your process? It's very much a part of the process. It's the, the dialogue and the open communications um, is very much a part of collective impact approach and the community schools. I mean, the community school director is the is the key to launching a community school model. So that community school director goes into the school building, is not um, on the school district's uh, personnel. They're you know hired outside of that. Um, but think of it as the co-pilot to the principal. So the, the principal and the, the teachers and the people in the building have had to deal with increasing challenges and barriers that these children are facing and are getting pulled in a thousand different directions. The community school director, director puts some sanity around how are you going to deal with this within the community school model framework? It, it's, it's a very defined process in, in implementing a community school. Um, it, it, it 
you know, Katrina and Caitlin can talk a lot, a lot more about this, but one of the first things that happens in a community school that is different is the engagement with the parents, with the adults, with the neighborhood, building those relationships. It's all about the relationship development while the community, while the action plan research and data collection and focus groups and surveys and one-on-one -on -one conversations and getting out in the community to gather all this information to put together this action plan. While that's happening, the community school director and her team are focusing on making the communication with the families much more positive and much more active and engaging. It's all about that. So I don't know, Caitlin or, or Katrina, if you want to talk a little bit about that. Because Caitlin's with me in the community. We, we, we took away titles at our school. So there's no director, there's no coordinator. We, we call ourselves the team. Because from my experience as being a supervisor for a million years, when you put titles on it, people tend to come to the boss, the boss, the boss. So they see Caitlin and I as one, as equals, as I see her as an equal. But building the trust, and we live here with the people. Like I said earlier, we live right here with them. So if there's a question, they come right to us. Caitlin and I do barbecues outside of my garage. We we didn't know we could spend the United Way money for this the year before because we were spending our own, but now we know we can use some of those funds. And every other Saturday, we have barbecues before, before COVID right here at the side of the house to let the people know we are here with you. And I think um, I, I just want to commend you guys for bringing this this co conversation up. I have been listening to um, the podcast series, and I think that we're you guys are diving into the topics that the conversations that need to be had. And so I think the conversation or the question around, you know, am I trying to be a white savior as a white woman? Like that's something I think I have to to check myself on daily because I've also always worked within the the nonprofit field, um, and so there's a lot of the nonprofit field that that has that mindset. And I think, I think it goes back to authentic relationships. And again, I could be wrong and still doing things wrong, but going back to like authentically knowing our families and we have 900 kids in our school. So there's obviously no way I know every single family, but as Katrina, you know, reference, we have about 200 or 300 families that, that we feel close with that. I feel like I could pick up the phone and call them. I actually just, you know, I got diagnosed with a dairy allergy and I know one of our students had a dairy allergy. So I called his mom and I said, what products are you using? What are some recipes? Like where I, and she sends me recipes all the time. Like we have developed relationships, but still, um, you know, there are frustrations that, that are I'm maybe like implicit biases that we have to check ourselves on, or me personally have to check myself on if, if we are dealing with a family and we're like, why did the parent do this? Or why, how could this have happened to the child who would let this happen? Like there is an air of judgment that comes up and it comes up in everyone. So how are you recognizing it, pushing it aside and embracing people with love and respect? Um, it's, you have to acknowledge that. And when you, when you don't acknowledge that, I think that's when the white savior part comes in where you are, it doesn't know, like this is the right thing to do. Um, we, and I think we do have to, to check partners on that too. And that's why I said, we, um, you know, we referenced that we want to vet partners because I think that we do experience toxic charity. Um, and it's, it's difficult because it's like, 
we're grateful that you donated this item or you donated this stuff, but like maybe what we really need is, is people who want to invest their time and energy in getting to know our students and not just giving things. Um, but do we turn those things away because they are still needed? So uh, I, I don't know. It's a daily conversation. Katrina and I probably spend at least a half hour each morning just checking in on like our thoughts and our feelings and how race and socioeconomic status and um, the power dynamics of white supremacy and capitalism. And like, we, I think we have a good, I don't know, Come social in. justice powwow <laughs> every morning. I shouldn't say powwow, a social justice check-in every morning. Um, because it, it, it's crucial to our work. And if we don't do that check-in, like we could be running loose in our own vein. I don't know. Yeah. Wow. And how powerful. I mean, and it, it seems like all, all of you from your different perspective, right? Like at the different levels with which you view this program, you are doing elements of that sort of self-reflection, whether it's saying, you know, okay, why why did we do it this way? We need to assess and change the way we're doing it. Or yeah, how am I doing this today? Why am I reacting this way? I mean, as someone that does like trauma therapy or trauma work a lot of the time and, and training around that, like checking ourselves and our reactions to say like, yeah, maybe I just don't have a full picture of what's going on in this person's life is pretty powerful. So I'm pretty insane. Like when I said earlier, the United Way is our backbone, but also our protector. Had I shared that email, my experience with Lori or Mike at United Way, that they would have taken action. I'm like, you know what, this is somebody, even though it's via another outlet coming through them, through our students, that's how they're connecting with our students. Well, through Gannon, I'll just put it out there, through Gannon that United Way would have been like all over it, not in a nasty way, they're more political than I am, you know, that they would have addressed this on my behalf for me. I, I feel confident in saying that. Even though we would say white savior because United Way is a whole bunch of white women there, which we all know, but they, they see things a bit different because they work with us closely and they would have had my back. I feel confident saying that. Thanks. Mm. Nice. So, Really, what I hear too is that y'all want to expand, and so, uh, and so what you know, um, what I am interested to know as we have uh, you know close on out. There's two questions that we. There's one specific question that we do ask at the end of this, and I want to make sure we ask that and have time. But real quick, I, I really want to know, um, you know, when it comes to expansion, um, where can the community help in, you know, um, in, I don't like the term body. I don't like the term buy-in, so I'm going to say, where can the muni community help in um, expanding the vision that Erie, uh, that United Way would like to to build um, and would and would like the support? So I, I want I want to know if somebody can ask that answer that. So um, thanks for asking that question. Appreciate it very much. Um, yeah, our vision at United Way is that every school that needs to be a community school um, is a community school. Um, we know that Erie's public schools has included it in their strategic plan that they want all of their schools to be community schools. And what it's gonna take is commitment, it's going to take financial resources and it's gonna take human resources. But I think what um, anyone can do is to really take the time to understand what this is and the work that is being done and how important it is and the impact that it will have on this generation right now and for the future. Um, 
and learn more about it. I mean, we're here. We would love to talk about it. You know, give us a call or, you know, we, you know, we'll do a, you know, a Teams or a Zoom meeting for a group of people just to talk about the work. Because I think the more people are aware of it and understand it, um, I think there can be a groundswell for let's get this done. Our, our children and our families deserve this. Yes, I love that. And I think, I think from a, a specific Strong Vincent perspective, I can't obviously speak for the other schools, but having more role models or adults in kids' life, like we want to be able to bring in our Gannon students more just to be like a, a, a buddy or like the big brother, big sister kind of vibe, but someone that maybe shoots some hoops with them after school, reads a book with them, whatever the kid is interested in, match them with someone who's interested in Unfortunately, one of the barriers that we've really come across is clearances. Obviously, all of our um, our volunteers would need clearances, but it doesn't just have to be a college student and it doesn't just have to be Gannon. So if there are other people out there that have always wanted to be a mentor or they have a specific skill and they would like to lead an after-school program, we we have a thriving after-school program. It's, it's all virtual this year, but our kids still want to do something. And unfortunately, if it's just Katrina and me, we can't lead every club for 140 kids which is the amount of kids that are involved right now, we need, um, we need more people that want to say, hey, I, um, I'm a scrapbooker. Like I want to lead a scrapbooking club virtually or you know, I know how to do a backflip. That seems dangerous, but that's just what came to my mind. You know, just any skill that you have, you can share with our students, um, but we need people who would be willing to commit. We do four weeks, just one hour, um, just one hour a week, but uh, we need we need the human resources to help with, and that's just one thing that pops to mind. But we do have a, a bunch of other things that we could use people for. Awesome, awesome. Another one via the United Way, Lori, being her wonderful self, the Erie Yacht Club. Uh, two years ago, reached out to Lori and was like, "Hey, we hear these amazing things that you're doing. How can we get involved?" And they gave eight of our students a full ride for eight weeks to learn to sail wow, at the Erie cool. Yacht Club. So when they heard that the parents couldn't afford the um, the gear that the kids needed, it was expensive. So I used some of our budget money. Some more Erie Yacht Club people heard about that and said, well, we would like to add on to the scholarship. So Strong Vincent don't have to pay for the family's water vest and water shoes and so on. So they gave us another eight scholarships for eight of our kids to go down to the Erie Yacht Club to learn to sell for free. The food is included in the scholarship as well as their gear. That's so awesome. that's another gap that's being bridged with the haves to the us. Haves. Yes. I don't want to say have nots. Yes. We have a lot of pride. We have a lot of soul. But the haves to us. Yes, the haves to the haves. So I real, so we have to get you out of here, Miss Caitlin. So please tell us what makes Erie yours in 30 seconds. What makes Erie yours, sister? I would say the people, and that's really what's keeping me here. When I graduated Gannon, you know, I have a lot of Buffalo pride um, I, sometimes I would love to go back. Laura, you've been to DC. That's like a, a dream city for me. There's so many places in the world that I could go, but it's the people that really keep me here. Um, I've made amazing friends. I've made family out here, whether it's my neighbors, I can't go for a, in the summer, I guess now no one's outside, but I can't go for a walk without stopping every five feet to talk to a neighbor, have a drink with a neighbor, grab something off of a neighbor's grill because the people here are really awesome. Um, and I couldn't imagine going somewhere else and having to start that all over. There's, my family's here. Yes, that's awesome. Thank you. So let's keep going. 
I would love to hear you, Miss Katrina. What makes Erie yours? Well, I don't want to get all philosophical and religious on you. I grew up Jehovah's Witness, and I believe that it's Jehovah that's keeping me here for a purpose because there are many times that I want to flee and leave, but I feel like like this is my call and this is my course. There was a lady that um, left the dance world to go to Oprah Winfrey School in Africa. And she said, she was at the top of her game in the dance world. And she said, this may not be where I want to be, but this is where I'm supposed to be. Mm. Answering the call. That's awesome. I, I think so, because this position comes with a lot of power, a lot of respect, a lot of authority. So just not walking through the door, kicking in the door and here I am with my blackness and I have a seat at the table mm -hmm. to make a difference, to make the voices heard of my marginal, marginalized children, black or white. Yes. A quick story. I was in Walmart one day and a little girl that calls me grandma. She's eighth grader now. She's running down the aisle. Grandma, grandma. I turn to hear this little voice. I give her this big embrace. Here's this big scruffy man with his beard looking like this redneck from the mountains that it, he was shooting anything moving. I'm thinking, oh, sugar, honey, iced tea. Mm -hmm. I'm in for it now. And he was like, oh, big old bill hug, your grandma, thank you. And I learned here not to judge a book by its cover. Excellent. And I thanked him for allowing his daughter to see things as they are and not what they should be. Mm -hmm. You know, and so that's things like that that keep me here. Mm -hmm. Thank you. Thank you for sharing. Jolyn, why don't you go? Oh, okay. Um, I think it's what's always made eerie mine because it's been mine for 35 years so it's the potential the perpetual potential and that keeps me going that I know we're better than we were five years ago and 10 years ago and 30 years ago so I just want to be a part of making Erie better and that's what makes it mine thank you thank you for sharing yes you Lori Oh, okay. Um, nothing, nothing really original, but um, just, you know, coming from Washington, D.C. and having it such a transient community, again, not community, a transient location, um, coming to Erie, back to Erie, um, there's community here. Can we improve it? Absolutely. And to JoLynn's uh, point, that's what's really exciting is we are improving it. But Erie, Erie is a community. We have community here. And I think sometimes people who have never lived somewhere that doesn't have community, they don't appreciate it. And I think we as a community, we we're gonna get things done. We're gonna, we're gonna make this a fantastic place for everybody. And that's that's what I see, and that's what keeps me here. Yes. Okay. All power to the people. Yeah. All right. Now, well, I'm so excited to have y'all. Any, uh, Marty, go ahead. Where can people find y'all? What projects or activities can they tie into um, with you? We're very active on social media. So the best way to stay up to date with our work is by far United Way social media and Strong Vincent does an awesome job on their Facebook page at the hands of Caitlin and Katrina. So highly recommend subscribing and um, just getting in on the conversation in that way. Um, and of course, our website, unitedwayerie.org for all of the other details. Yes. All right. 
Well, Happy Women's History Month, ladies. <laughs> this is historic. It is United Way's first podcast in a hundred and seven years. Wow. <laughs> and we are the first. Oh, you are the first. I'm so yes. happy. That is so awesome. That there is so cool. Well, thank well, you all. That's an honor. Yeah. Thank you all so much for this conversation. It was really, I feel like we, we, dove deep into really complex issues and talked about a lot, but really I, I feel so much the better for having such clear insight into to the work that you're doing and, and really the, the difficult self-reflection and, and the thoughtfulness that goes into to the work you do. So thank you for sharing that. Thanks. We'll be right back after this. Right. So we just wrapped up our conversation with some of our new friends at United Way. Um, What an amazing conversation from like so many different perspectives. We are so grateful to have had the opportunity to unpack such different and and deep issues and, and, um, and to really, you know, answer some some tough questions or, or engage in some some courageous conversations, yes. and um, and because of that, you know, through our conversation, we were talking about some big stuff, some some big institutionalized, systemic, uh, generational stuff, and uh, you know, our guests, you know, we were so grateful for their time and so appreciative, but they could only stay with us for so long. You know, they all had to go in and live their lives, which will allow. Uh, we understand that everyone can stay for like eight hours, how we want to have a conversation. Um, but so we wanted to take a little bit more time now afterwards and unpack a little bit more of those, those bigger issues because there is so much to unpack and there's so much to dive into that we wanted to give some of these systemic issues a little bit more time. Um, so we're back. <laughs> and uh, I don't know if someone wants to start or I can kind of give one thought that I had as we were talking. Please do. Okay. So I was thinking about, we kind of touched on this a little bit about how language or well, about how these issues that we put on individuals are really systemic issues, right? And I, I was hearing that even in the language we were using and the language that I personally use sometimes. Um, but one one phrase that I heard someone say was, you know, these low-income kids or these low-income um, kids that, you know, come into these schools or these whatever. And I thought, well, my first thought was, well, that's funny because kids don't have an income. So how could they be low-income kids? And then my next thought was, and when we label kids, families, even adults, like low-income people, that's really putting the the responsibility or the onus on the person, as opposed to saying something to the effect of like kids in families whose parents don't get paid enough for yes. the work that they do, or kids and families whose parents or caregivers don't get paid a livable wage. Now the responsibility is not on the family. It's it's really highlighting the systemic injustice of it. And I and in such a small specific example, I feel like that to me highlighted the issue that sometimes we miss when we try to help people, but we don't understand like the the true systems at play. Mm. Yeah. Mm. I fall into that myself. I've never thought about that, how, you know, and I've struggled in the past, or I struggle all the time when we talk about issues that affect um, the Black um, population or Black community a lot, and then also 
statistically black people are amongst um you know the people who earn the least and like being conscious of not saying like oh black or marginalized people and low-income people and not wanting to attach those things to each other because not all black people are low-income and not all low-income people are black but what you're saying is true like people are not just poor people are you know systemically um, underemployed or unemployed and that impacts their children and having when we have these conversations about um, changing the lives of children and their parents we have to be conscious of like the greater systems in our community that keep those people in those cycles of poverty and I think we kind of touched that on that in this conversation but I'm glad that we're like debriefing it now mm -hmm. yeah you're right like we needed so many more hours to like unpack all of that conversation. Um, I felt myself getting super passionate on the topic about the systemic issues. Like really, like, I don't know if it's just, and I know what it is, like why I'm so adamant about inclusion and how we should change the way that we say things or um, the way that we kind of like, I would just say the way we change, the, the way that we say things. Um, and, when I, and one thing that, to go back what you were talking about, Lydia, about like just, low income family, like saying low income children, I, I, I'm just so upset still like about the fact that we are moving forward in a way of like, yes, co community uh, efforts like these are important. But again, I'm kind of just like at the point where I see so many, so many things that are wrong with the structure mm -hmm. of of our systems, like, okay, so example, I'm reading right now the book of hood, on hood feminism. And one of the things that she said in the book, she talks about respectability politics are really about controlling group behavior with de designations of appropriate or inappropriate behavior rooted in structural inequality. And it's just, that is a lot. That was a lot to like, that's a lot to unpack, but I'm just, I don't know. I think, go ahead. I think it's it's we live in a community where like we all need to do our part and it's we're 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 or organism like you know everyone has a specific role they have to feel. Um so in my role as a community organizer, and there's some hang-ups with that I can talk about at some other time, but like a lot of my work is focused on the systemic issues and the policies, you right. know. Um from the federal level to the state level to the local level that keep people in these cycles. So when we talk about low income students, it's it's really great that we have um, community schools that are gonna be there and work directly with these children. They're not gonna have jobs until 10, 15 years later. Mm -hmm. um, they need these, their teeth clean, they need the doctor's appointment, but like what can we do to make sure that their parents have the full-time employment that they can that they need to not have to work two to three jobs and be there to be more present in their children's lives, um, to you know afford to buy those jackets for them, um, to have the health care um, to take care of their kids, you know, and the glasses. I'm a um, visually <laughs> stunted person myself, and like it is really important, you know, being able to see in the classroom and how that impacts your learning. So I struggle with like. You know, a lot of times in our culture, we focus on um, the immediate needs. And it's not to say that the immediate needs are not um, important, but it's like, how can we 
change the structures and the barriers that keep people from being able to do this themselves and support themselves so that we don't have to do these things for them. And that's not to say that we shouldn't work as a community because I'm not there. <laughs> we need to support each other as a community, but also we need to give, allow, have structures where people get the resources that they can support themselves and their mm -hmm. families and contribute more. You have more time to contribute when you can support yourself and be mm -hmm. in a healthy mindset because poverty um, really impacts us all mentally, you know? Yeah, no, absolutely. It has to be, it has to be short and long-term. Like it's a both and situation where you're putting a bandaid on a bullet wound if you are just addressing the immediate, right? Like if you're just addressing the fact that there's a gaping wound, like, okay, but if there's something deeper in there causing this, or if like this needs something better or, or more permanent, like we can't just give a kid a coat when mom's not making more than $8 an hour to feed three kids like that. It's that math will never add up and, and things won't ever change for that family until we start advocating on these systemic levels. And I think one thing I was thinking about too, Marty, as you were talking was like the assumptions we make, like such sweeping assumptions we make all the time. And by we, I, I mean like the people in power that have you know, all the money and all the connections and all the resources that they need to do amazing work. And they are doing good work and, and with the best intentions, you know, but what happens when, if I have money and resources and I look at a community and I say, you know what, you know, there's a need here. There's gaps in, you know, services. The, you know, kids need a dentist and they can't get to the dentist. So they need a dentist here. But, but I feel like people aren't asking the questions of like, well, why why isn't the community meeting that need? Because we as a community always want to be like self-sufficient. There's not a person that's like, I want to rely on everyone else for everything. People mm -hmm. want to be able to do things themselves and, and get to, you know, be independent. Like that's just a human desire. Um, and so, you know, if we're not asking, okay, well, why, why isn't there a dentist in this neighborhood? Or why can't parents take their kids to the dentist, you know, because of transportation, because of low paying work that they'd get fired from if they missed a day. It, like those questions and then the subsequent answers I think are really important. And those are missing from the conversation. We just see, oh, there's this gap. Now, if I have the money and resources, I'll do it rather than saying, okay, I have the money and resources. That's what allows me to do it. But these people want to be doing it for themselves. How can I give them that same money and power? so that they can do it for themselves instead of me coming in and doing it for them. Exactly. And that is why I'm glad you said that because that I, in the beginning, I was really struggling with how I wanted to say it. So what you just said is what we were talking about earlier about the Black Panther Party, which I literally have been like in the last well now month or, two or so, I've really just been deep diving into like what the Black Panther Party did and what they were, obviously I knew, obviously since I was a kid, about what the Black Panther Party did. But the movie Judas and the Black, Judas and the, and the Black Messiah really highlighted what the Black Panther Party was doing as far as collective impact and collective community. And when, you know, I heard, um, you know, uh, one of them, I can't remember who, who talk about collective impact and that being one of their models and framework for a uh, unite. Lori, yes, Lori was talking about, um, you know, collective impact and the importance of it, which I really was really down for it. Um, and, and I love the framework. Um, but the thing is, like, that's something that our communities have been wanting to do and have done. 
and have been infiltrated by the U.S. government have been re have been dismantled because of the collective impact. And so then now it's interesting that like these, you know, new frameworks are coming out from all around the world and from all these different, you know, people sitting at the table who have no idea, honestly, what, what people in uh, low income areas and, and who struggle with poverty uh, have to deal with. Um, and it's just interesting to now see that framework happening. And I, you know, I, and I just, I didn't want to be, uh, I just didn't want to be super cynical, but that's the reality of it is when you hear that. And when I see, like, when I've watched, even when I watched that movie, it just really made me frustrated to know that we have these systems, these systems were supposed to be in place and they were dismantled by people. And I, and, and it just, it, fr it frustrates me to have these like new, I don't know, these new developments in this new age that people are saying, and it's just like, what? No, like this has been happening in our communities. This has been, you know, and it just, that's why you're right about the white savior thing and making sure people aren't doing that and coming into communities um, because they now are, are sad and feel bad. <laughs> that's kind of how I, you know, and so, I mean, oh, my thoughts are all over the place. I really, I'm gonna be honest, like it's, it, this is a lot, this is a very touchy subject to be honest with you. I don't know. How do y'all feel? I mean, that's history. Um, I think Caitlin talked about reflecting on history before yeah. we move forward or like using history to inform our present. You know, um, the Af Black American experience has been a long one with strife, but along all that history was collective. What is the language? I'm not, this is a new language for me. What was it, collective? Collective impact collective is the impact. language we were using. Yeah. But I mean, impact. other people call like mutual aid or mutual aid. like there's like a lot of different versions and iterations yeah. of this for sure. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, but for a long time, um, because, you know, the white communities in America, you know, ostracized the black community from a lot of resources mm -hmm. and not just the black community, um, mm. the Latino community, the Asian community, any marginalized community. Um, in this country has used mutual aid to survive and thrive. Mm -hmm. But whether, I don't know, I'm not gonna speak on wrong history here, but I believe in the 70s and 80s at the federal level, a lot of the funding that helped sustain us, you know, was um, defunded. And um, between the war on drugs and a lot of other big systemic challenges broke up our communities. We were doing these things for ourselves. And after those eras, now we're experiencing this thing. And I think this is where white saviorism comes from. You know, these communities that used to sustain themselves and thrive on their own now have to be saved where they were protecting and serving themselves before. And we're still struggling with like, you know, these people are not helpless. Yes, um, we're all kind of disconnected with our history and disconnected with like our culture of where we came from. But if we're being real, we need to really connect with like uplifting people to do these things themselves, uplifting people to take on these challenges themselves and not saying themselves, like leave them alone and they'll figure that out themselves. But like, you know, I don't think um, some of the solutions we have where it's like throw money at it and mm -hmm. um, put a bandaid on it. And, you know, we're going to catch this here is really the solution, but this is me as an organizer speaking, me being a grassroots from the bottom up creates change person. Well, and I think, no, I think you're spot on. And I think it it goes back to people's intentions with the work that they're doing. Because, and I've grappled with this with some work that I um, 
I've been involved in participatory defense and I was communicating with another woman from a hub out in, I don't know, Philadelphia or somewhere. And, um, and she was basically saying like all social workers are evil controlling, like narcissistic people. And I have a degree in social, two degrees in social work. And, and I could tell that I was like getting a little internally defensive, but I recognized what she was saying. And, and the point was that there are some people that go to quote unquote help because they want to be dependent on and they want that power. And there are some people that go into help because they have empathy for the person and they see that, okay, this person has a need and I can help them with it and I can help them figure out how to do this themselves so that they don't have to depend on me, but I can help give them whatever that first step is that they need. And I, I feel like that's the difference in policy too, is that, you know, your policies or your, your agency or your programs or your projects can either create a niche in which then you are always required to be there, or you can create a temporary niche where I'm going to walk beside you from here to the next block. And then at the next block, I'm going to leave and you're going to be able to keep walking without me. Um, and I think that that's something that, that has to be really intentionally done, especially in like Devana, like you said, like the, at the end of the day, we're all still under the guise of white supremacy. Like we're still underneath all of that. And, and the real, and we've talked about this before, but this like the, the most terrifying, most insidious part of white supremacy is that it changes its name and it changes its clothes every decade. And so it looks different and it sounds different every decade. And so it's really easy to, to misplace it or say, oh yeah, we've dealt with it. There's no slavery anymore. We dealt with it. Oh, there's no segregation anymore. We dealt with it. We're never going to be able to, to deal with it until we acknowledge just how deeply rooted it is and how it is still as present today as it ever was, you know, hundreds of years ago here in the United States at its founding. Mm. Girl, I don't even know what to say after that. But to that end, and the one that I said about hang up about organizing, and our friend Ethan the other day said, um, sometimes we take these issues and make them very academic and we theorize about how we can change it. And, you know, if you don't have the background in it, you're kind of disconnected from it and you plan, you strategize, but you really don't understand the experience. Um, and that's not to say my job as organizing is that all the time, but sometimes when you focus on policy, you don't focus on the actual needs. And that's where I commend places like United Erie, where it's like, we have the resources and like, while, you know, some other people are doing their political fighting about how to allocate those resources and this and that, we're here to get you those immediate needs. We're here to get you that food. We're here to get you those glasses so you can see the, the, the chalkboard and understand the material you're learning. You know, it, it is needed. There, we're all in this system where we're fighting white supremacy and we're fighting poverty and we're fighting all, and we all have different theories about how to change it, but we all, until we <laughs> defeat sections of it, we all are needed to um, help people exist and help people survive and get to that next stage so they can go and theorize or make the changes that they need. Yeah, for sure. You're totally right. And I think this work is, I think we kind of ended our conversation with United Way talking about, you know, how they're going to expand and, and what they're looking for next. And they still kind of talked about boots on the ground, which is again, still important. I would love to see United Way expand mm -hmm. upwards into that systemic level. 
of issues, yeah. right? How can we be leveraging? United Way has so many amazing connections and so many amazing partners. And, and clearly, I mean, with the people we just talked to, amazing people working there. Um, how can we be leveraging all of that potential to, to create policy that, that is meaningful? You know, you have boots on the ground folks that, that are working with these kids every day and see what the issues are. I, I've, I mean, I briefly worked in schools with kids and saw what the issues were. It didn't take long to see where the gaps in, in policies were when I was working with men incarcerated or previously incarcerated. Like I could see where, where policies affecting, you know, ex-felons were not helping these families. And I, I could see all these gaps. So how can we take that now in this context of United Way and, and take it to city council, take it to county council, take it to our state reps or our state senators or our Congress people. Like there's just so much good we could be doing in addition to this. There's so much potential and I'm so excited to see where this can go. But that's where like in my dreams, that's where I see it going. I like that. I like moving, expanding upwards. You're right. But I think that I don't know that's going to take them having to have those uncomfortable conversations, which I'm, I mean, obviously I'm not there. I'm not at the table. So I would hope that they would be doing that, which mm-hmm. um, it seems like they really, they are, you know, you know, I, I, but you know, but it just, it's a lot. That's a lot. That's a. Yeah. yeah. Somewhere down the road. Yeah. I think that this, this feels like a good space to, to resolve kind of those lingering last minute systemic level thoughts that we were having. Um, and obviously, like, like you said, Devon, like we could spend forever talking about this. And so I think this, I'm sure will be the first of many times in which we, we dissect this issue specifically. Um, and, and again, just so grateful that we could have this, this conversation. Absolutely. Um, for the community, you know, when you all heard this conversation, for those that are listening, we would love to hear your thoughts um, you know, your, you know, things that you would like to, um, you know, maybe ask United Way, or what do you think about community impact? I think that just, I, or whatever you would like to talk, talk about or converse about, um, we are, we're definitely interested to know what you all think, because this was a definitely an interesting conversation. And so I'm just, I'm now interested to know what the community is going to say about this conversation. I mean, whether positive, negative, whatever, I just want to hear people's thoughts. You've been listening to the Our Eerie Podcast. Community voices unpacking Eerie's baggage and speaking truth to power. You can continue the conversation on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter at Our Eerie Series. Funding provided by United Way of Erie and Ember and Forge. Music produced by Light Shadow. We appreciate you for listening to the Our Eerie Podcast. Until next time, take care of yourself. Keep fighting the good fight. Peace.